1: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. An official portrait has been commissioned by every single person who has served as President of the United States. They serve to remind generation after generation of those that have been elected to that office. You know, some are great, some are so-so, and others are just downright awful. My personal vote for the worst presidential portrait of all time is that of Andrew Jackson. But, of course, you're welcome to disagree. Flashback to May 23rd of 1965. That's when it was announced in the press that famed artist Peter Hurd of New Mexico had been chosen to create the official likeness of then-President Lyndon Johnson. This news really shouldn't have come as much of a surprise. That's because the Johnsons were big fans of Mr. Hurd's work and had requested that two of his canvases be loaned to the White House for display. In addition, Hurd had previously painted a portrait of the president for a Time magazine cover. That's when he was crowned Time's Man of the Year on January 1st of 1965, and the president and his wife were mostly happy with the results. Hurd indicated they would have the new portrait completed within one year. Initially, Hurd was unsure as to what would appear in the portrait, other than the obvious, which is the president. Now, LBJ was well known for being a bit of a cowboy, but you know, painting a man in a business suit with a western scene behind him, well that kind of made little sense. Heard needed to find a different approach. A couple of months later Heard began work on the painting, and he expressed concern that the canvas he chose may be a bit too large. Quote, They haven't said it in so many words, but I think that the Johnsons don't want anything too big. He continued, I suspect that they don't want people saying that those flamboyant Texans couldn't do with a modest-sized portrait. Heard also commented as to how he found out he had been chosen to paint the president. Quote, my wife and I were invited to a White House bash for the president of South Korea. I got out my evening clothes and they smelled mothballs because I don't use them down here at the ranch. I felt self-conscious as I stood by the president and then he calmly dropped the bomb when he introduced me to the Korean president. I want you to meet the man who's gonna do my portrait. Just because LBJ chose her to do the painting, that didn't mean he would cooperate. Lady Bird, the president's wife, basically forced her husband to pose for the painting. For the first sitting, which took place at the LBJ ranch, Johnson was in deep discussion with then United Nations ambassador, Arthur Goldberg, and he kept jumping out of his seat and pacing the floor. Of course, a portrait artist needs to study facial expressions, but Hurd could never get a good look because Johnson kept rubbing his eyes and you know, rubbing his chin and just blocking his view. The second sitting occurred at Camp David, but LBJ was so exhausted that he fell asleep. All Heard could see was the top of the president's head. Total time between both sessions was estimated to be about 50 minutes, that's it. And as a result, Hurd was forced to complete the painting from photographs. He even went as far as asking a nearby rancher with similar hands to be a stand in, I guess a hand in, for Johnson. The rancher drove 140 miles, that's 225 kilometers round trip each day just so the artist could paint his hands. Hurd offered him another of his paintings in exchange for his modeling services. That April, after approximately 400 hours of work, the portrait was completed and shipped to the Johnson Ranch in Texas with strict instructions it was not to be unpacked until the artist arrived. And just like a child trying to grab a sneak peek beneath the wrapping of Christmas gifts, the Johnsons had the portrait immediately unwrapped. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. The unveiling did not go well. Neither the president or Mrs. Johnson liked what they saw. LBJ immediately rejected the picture and blurted out that it was, quote, the ugliest thing I ever saw. So let me see if I can describe the painting in words. This is going to be difficult to do. Imagine a determined-looking President Johnson peering out beyond the left edge of the painting. He is wearing a dark suit with a book simply titled History under his left arm. Behind him, the Capitol Dome lights up the evening sky. Now, I'm the first to admit that art is not my thing, so I'll simply state that while it's certainly not the best portrait I've ever seen, it is far from the worst. Here are the presidential couple's complaints as told to reporters by Mrs. Johnson's press secretary, Elizabeth Carpenter. First, as Hurd had anticipated, the Johnsons felt the portrait was way too large. They wanted a painting that measured 30 inches by 36 inches, that's 76 by 91 centimeters, but this gigantic beast came in at 40 by 48 inches, or 102 by 122 centimeters. Next, the Capitol building in the background was far too bright and quote, inappropriate for this kind of portrait. Mrs. Johnson supposedly wanted the Capitol Dome to be, quote, misty and hazy. And lastly, quote, the positioning of the figure for the painting is not consistent with other White House portraits. Shortly after the news of the rejected painting broke in the Washington Post, the 62-year-old painter was contacted by the New York Times. He said that he felt that the president's remarks were, quote, very damn rude. He continued, quote, I'm deploring all this publicity, but I do have to defend myself to a degree. I was damn glad to get out of the whole thing. I don't want any recrimination against them. They've got problems enough. Mrs. Johnson couldn't have been kinder. Hurd recalled that when Johnson rejected the painting, he said, quote, what do you like, Mr. President? And he said, I'll show you what I like, and he whisked out the Rockwell. That's the end of the quote. This was a painting that Norman Rockwell had previously done of LBJ, which was created mostly from photographs. Hurd commented, quote, I've never learned to copy from photos. In general, most Americans sympathize with Hurd, And it further helped cement Johnson's reputation as a man who had no patience for any opinion other than his own. Now the Smithsonian did contact Hurd and they expressed their desire to purchase the painting and that was for display in their new national portrait gallery. But the artist decided to hold on to the portrait for a bit longer. Instead, Heard placed the painting on a tour of small galleries, and the idea was to allow the public to make their own judgment as to the quality of the work. Its first showing was at the Gallery of Fine Arts in Columbus, Ohio, on January 12 of 1967. An estimated 400 gallery patrons saw the painting for the first time, and they gave it mixed reviews. Although I have to say, no one thought it was as bad as the president had stated. Of course, if you're going to declare a work of art to be the ugliest thing you ever saw, you can bet that someone's going to try and do even worse. On February 6, 1967, the Richard Gray Gallery in Chicago opened a one-week exhibit of really, really ugly LBJ artwork. My favorite was a life-size wooden sculpture with an extremely long, brightly painted, Pinocchio-like nose, giant ears, and a lamp. It was titled, Lightbulb Johnson. The Omaha World Herald held a Paint the President contest. The winner was a 37-year-old mailman named Carl Bieber. He beat out 1,550 other entries that were, quote, executed in everything from topsoils to oils. A group of fifth graders submitted a work made out of playground mud, guess it would have been that of Crayola's. Bieber was awarded $50, or about $360 today, for his effort. His painting was done in ink and enamel on a sheet of plastic. I'm sure that that painting is long lost, but I can't help but be curious as to whether it was better or worse than Hurd's work for the president. For a short time, there was a popular pun circulating around Washington. Quote, Artists should be seen around the White House, but not heard. That's heard as an artist, H U R D. Then came the news on August 13th that the painting had gone missing. Even though the president hated it, it was reportedly valued at $30,000. That's about $215,000 today adjusted for inflation. All that was known was that it had been en route from Albuquerque to an art gallery in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Well, don't worry too much. The next day, it was announced that the painting had been located aboard a train in Dallas, Texas. It simply had been misrouted. In the end, Johnson did select a portrait that he liked. It was painted by Elizabeth Shumatov, and for that painting, LBJ sat for seven different sittings. My guess is that he learned his lesson from all the bad publicity he received after rejecting Hurd's painting, so he probably thought to himself, I better sit for this one. As for Hurd's painting, the Smithsonian did finally purchase the portrait for a much-reduced price of $6,000. Johnson requested that it not be displayed, so it was placed in storage for a while. Now, I haven't personally checked, but according to the Smithsonian website, the painting is currently on display in the National Portrait Gallery. Three days before leaving office, Johnson reflected on the whole painting fiasco. Quote, I never said it was ugly. I thought it was a pretty good likeness, except for one little detail. It left off the halo. And at least he had a good sense of humor about it all. Useless, useful.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Then I'm sure to get a brain, a heart, a uh-huh.
0: home, the knife. Oh, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of ours. Here he is, a whiz of a whiz, if ever a whiz there was, if ever, oh, ever a whiz there was, the whiz of ours was one because, 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 because,
1: because of the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the whiz, the wonderful of whiz. Magnificent musical spectacle which highlights the new entertainment season. That's The Wizard of Oz, a glorious extravaganza painted with a rainbow of technicolor. With a cast of thousands at a cost of millions, it is brought to you by Metro-Golden-Mare, makers of the great Ziegfeld and Broadway Melody, and presented as a greater attraction than even those two pace-setting entertainments. From border to border and coast to coast, they're calling The Wizard of Oz, the sensation of the year. This is your MGM radio reporter signing off, thanking you for listening and hoping you will enjoy The Wizard of Oz when it comes your way. That clip is from the show Leo is on the Air, which was a 15-minute radio show that MGM produced to help promote its movies. The program ran for nearly two decades and featured cast member appearances, vignettes, and musical performances from their upcoming movie releases. The Wizard of Oz is considered to be the most watched movie of all time, so there's probably little I could say that you haven't heard before. The movie was filmed between October 12, 1938 and March 16, 1939. It was the most expensive movie that MGM had ever made up until that point, costing $2,777,000 or about $48 million when adjusted for inflation. The movie premiered on August 15, 1939 at Grauman's Chinese Theater to nearly all positive reviews and it did quite well at the box office. Which is not well enough to make a profit for MGM, they couldn't recoup their investment. Total ticket sales were $3,017,000, but after factoring all the costs to distribute and promote the movie, it lost $1.145 million. MGM didn't turn a profit on the film until it was re-released in 1949. It first premiered on television on November 3, 1956, as the final installment of the CBS show Ford Star Jubilee. CBS paid MGM a whopping $225,000 to broadcast the movie. It was broadcast annually between 1959 and 1991. In the pre cable TV, you know, pre VCR age, most homes only received a few television channels, which meant that almost Everyone would see the movie at some point in their life. As a brief side note, many of my students hate The Wizard of Oz. The most common complaint that I hear from them is that the movie is creepy. So here's a question for you. The original Three Musketeers candy bar was very different from the modern version that you can purchase. So what was different about it? If you hang around for a few minutes, I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. In other news, here are a few stories that involve the world of fashion in some way. Albert Cole of Cedar Rapids, Iowa was reported to be in critical condition on March 24th of 1927. His illness, his entire body had turned a brilliant blue color. Cole was the musical director of Brandon Consolidated Schools, but he moonlighted as a shoe repairman in his spare time. So he had one of his assistants dye a pair of his Oxford's blue, and then he proceeded to wear the shoes to school. After walking some distance, Albert's feet began to perspire and the blue dye started to run. As the day went on, he began to suffer from an extreme headache, and then upon returning home that evening, he immediately went to bed. The next morning he awoke to find that his entire body had turned blue. Doctors gave little hope for his recovery, but I was able to locate an article published 18 months later on September 24th, 1928, that mentioned that Mr. Cole was, quote, present and heard relative to the band situation. That means he either survived or his ghost took over in his absence. In 1965, the New York firm Trio introduced a new line of girdles called Pop Pants. They came in four different designs, Crying Eyes, The Big Zip, Hamburger and Soda Pop, and Stars and Stripes. Freeport, Long Island resident Mrs. W. Carl Crittenden spotted an ad for these garments in her local newspaper, and she immediately sent a letter to the manufacturer asking them to remove the Stars and Stripes design from their offerings. As the national chairman of the Daughters of the Revolution's American Flag of the United States Committee, Mrs. Crittenden considered this design to be, quote, a shocking caricature of the United States flag and asked the company to remove it from the market. Surprisingly, they didn't dismiss her as a crazy woman, and they agreed to do so. A spokesman for the manufacturer gave this statement, quote, We will burn the darn things or send them to some foreign country where our flag isn't involved. If you've ever wished for disposable swimwear, 32-year-old British fashion designer Morton Almond offered up the perfect solution in April of 1967. He offered a complete outfit consisting of a bikini, a beach hat, and a bag to carry it all in, made from, get this, aluminum foil. Purchasing the bikini itself would set you back $1.40, which would be about $10.25 today. The article does mention that, quote, the top needs molding to fit the individual wearer, and that the suit was guaranteed for two wearings, but could most likely be worn at least three times. The swimwear was available in silver, bronze, and gold colors, but one could only swim in the silver version. The other two colors washed off in the water. And best of all, if the bikini didn't work out, you could always use it to wrap your leftovers in.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So a few minutes ago, I asked you what was so unusual about the original Three Musketeers bar, and assuming you didn't go on the internet to search it out, did you figure it out? Here, what a few of my friends had to say.
0: Did it have nuts in it? The company didn't use marshmallow? It had caramel.
1: Didn't have chocolate. Um, it had peanuts. Uh, the original version had nuts. Um, I believe
0: there was three different flavors. There was a strawberry,
1: a vanilla and a chocolate, maybe? That last response is actually the correct one, and I was really surprised he got it, because nobody did. I asked a bunch of other people, and almost everybody said nuts. Here's what he had to say. That's correct. Wow. How'd you know that? Uh, I don't know. I read it somewhere. <laughs> wow. When Three Musketeers was introduced in 1932, it was labeled, quote, three confections in this package for five cents. There were three separate bars in the package, chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. When World War II broke out, restrictions on sugar coupled with the ever-increasing cost of ingredients forced the manufacturer, that's Mars Incorporated, to phase out the vanilla and the strawberry flavors, leaving us with just the more popular chocolate bar. It was also the third successful candy that Mars brought to market. After a few false starts, they hit the big time with the Milky Way in 1923, and they followed that by the Snickers bar in 1930. We had dinner the other night with a friend who mentioned that she hated chocolate. I have to say, not me. I personally like all of those bars, the Milky Way, the Snickers, or the Three Musketeers. I think they're all excellent. But I guess if I was forced to choose just one, hmm, tough decision, but I think I'd opt for the Snickers. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and you can also email me there. Uh, I should tell you that as I'm recording this, my site has been down for about 24 hours. Nothing I've done. It's the service provider that that had a major failure. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this, everything will be back up and running. Anyway, you can also uh, check out my books. They're both written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so simply by going to Facebook and doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and you should get a quick match. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. A favorable rating would be great if you can do so. And you can go to any other podcast indexing service and you'll get automatic updates when a new episode is released. Anyway, I thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge.